0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us on one of the last few days of the August recess. We appreciate uh, you being here for this briefing uh, that the Cato Institute is hosting. My name is Matt Weibel. I'm a a director of government affairs at the Cato Institute, and today we'll be talking about freedom in the 50 states. Um, I'll be moderating today's briefing on the fifth edition of Freedom in the 50 States, an index of personal and economic freedom. A publication that ranks states based on personal freedom regulatory policy and fiscal policy Uh, you can find the complete list of rankings and a ton of information on the website freedominthe50states.org 5050 not the word joining us today are on our panel are john samples the vice president of the cato institute and the two authors of freedom in the 50 states will ruger and jason sorens Uh, We'll have time for Q&A at the end, so please hold your questions. Um, With that, I'll turn it over to John Samples, who's going to introduce our authors.
1: Thank you. So do the states matter? I think here in Washington, we're inclined to forget about them or think that they don't matter all that much. Uh, After all, the big issues are debated here, fought about here. The big hysteria increasingly takes place here right in Washington, not in the states. But think about for a moment the average citizens, or even the most citizens, their concrete uh, interactions with government are most often going to take place at the state and local level. If you want to have your children education educated, most people are going to ha- send them to government schools. Want to open a business? You're going to find out that, about state and local regulations that you need to deal with. And finally, of course, if you want to drive a car, you have to go to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, which probably has made more libertarians than the Cato Institute. <laughs> um, but the, I think also the states are important in another way. We're accustomed to thinking about government being accountable through the voting booth. You go in November, you vote, and those uh, people that are elected are, are accountable to you, the voters. Cato uh, adjunct scholar Ilya Solman, who works here at George Mason University, has pointed out, however, that there's also you can talk about voting with your feet. In the American system with 50 states, if you don't like the kind of government you're getting, you don't like the policies that are being pursued or the ways they are being applied, you can go somewhere else. Now, of course, however, it's very important that people be able to compare and contrast. They have to have information. Citizens have to have information if they're going to vote with our, their feet. And that brings us to what I think is the real, one of the many virtues of this study. Freedom in the 50 States attempts in a systematic way to give citizens and policymakers the kind of information they need to have the best kinds of government at the state and local level. Let's begin with a brief introduction of our two co-authors, then I'll turn it over to them. Our first speaker, Will Ruger, is a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He's also vice president for research and policy at the Charles Koch Institute. Jason Sorens is lecturer in the Department of Government and program director of the Political Economy Project at Dartmouth College. Gentlemen, we await your um, information.
2: Thank you, John, and uh, thank you to the Cato Institute for publishing uh, this book. Um, uh, If you want to know who's number one, you might look at my tie color. That might give you some indication, Uh, but I'll save that for now. Um, So, again, welcome, and, and, and thank you for coming to hear about our study of freedom in the 50 states. This is the fifth edition of this book. Uh, We've been doing this now for over a decade, and we have data that goes all the way back to 2000. So we're able to nicely look at a variety of different uh, policies over time. Um, Freedom in the 50 states is the most comprehensive study and ranking of freedom uh, across the 50 states. It, It doesn't just examine economic freedoms, uh, fiscal and regulatory. It also looks at personal freedoms. And that was one of the big innovations of this study right from the, from the beginning. It was the first study that ever looked at personal freedoms, either at the national or international level that we know of. Uh, and our study looks at three big categories, fiscal policy, regulatory policy, and policies that relate to government paternalism, or what we call personal freedom. Again, as I said, this is the fifth edition. It's revised, it's updated fully, uh, and it's expanded. And what is the purpose here, really? I mean, John highlighted that a little bit. I mean, we want to measure and compare the states based on how their public policies affect individual freedom. Uh, We want to know how the government impinges on people's economic freedom, on their businesses through regulation, for example, and in their personal spheres, the quote-unquote bedroom issues. Now, of course, it's not just an academic exercise. I mean, we want to look at freedom because freedom is valuable for its own sake. Um, But we also do want to look at how freedom affects other things that we care about. Uh, So, for example, economic health, right, economic prosperity, how freedom might impact our wallets. Uh, We also want to look at how it might impact movement across the United States in terms of migration patterns. And we can do this with our study. And one of the things that we think is really valuable about this study, actually, is we provide this massive data set now that goes all the way back to 2000, you think about all those years multiplied by 230 variables times 50 states, that's a lot of data. And, we, and one of the things we've seen is that scholars and policy analysts have used that data to talk about all kinds of things that we didn't anticipate. In other words, kind of creating a spontaneous order around data um, you know kind of data informed social science analysis, and so we think that 's a, a value to this and we we hope that other people will use that data and try to explore these issues now, other uh, folks who might want to use this would be legislators and their staff. Um, they can see how their states are doing relative to other states and and sometimes it takes that kind of comparative analysis to say, You know what? maybe we should be uneasy about what 's happening in our states and change you know why are we using occupational licenses for funeral home attendance when all these other states aren't. Or if people say, we can't do it this way when it comes to, say, zoning, you could say, well, look at all these other states that are doing it. Um, So I think it's valuable for those folks and to just see, you know, kind of if they care about freedom, how are we doing Citizens can use this to make decisions about where they might want to retire or where they might want to move their business or move themselves. Um, you know, Jason uh, has talked about in some of the interviews he's been doing this week about how he moved from New York to New Hampshire in part because of some of the regulations on education that New York had that New Hampshire didn't. Um, reporters can use this. If there's any reporters here, thank you. Uh, you can use this to uh, see how those states are looking in a national context, to see some areas that are kind of ripe for more investigation. You know, why, are, why is our state doing this, right? right? Why is our state, like New York, why are they revoking driver's licenses for non-driving non-dri- uh, drug offenses? And how does that actually affect people who are trying to get back uh, on the ladder of economic success if they can't drive around, particularly if you're not in an area where, where there's a lot of public transportation or Uber options? So there's a lot of different ways you can use this. And uh, and hope so hopefully, even though I joked about the kind of who's number one, hopefully uh, this isn't really just merely about the kind of sizzle or the rankings, but about that substance, about the stake, if you will. OK, so one of the great things about states is that the American federal system is, is still alive. Uh, I mean, it's been hampered over the last 80 years. Uh, but it's still alive, and that allows state governments to, you know, talk, to really deal with a lot of different issues across the board. Um, and I say federalism is still alive, and states are still important because we've seen that a lot of the action that's been happening over the last several years, particularly back when there was more, po- uh, w- more. Um, uh, when all three branches weren't in the hands of the same, or I guess the judiciary isn't in the hands of a partisan branch, but we know what we're talking about here in terms of the fact that there's more unified government in terms of party. Um, But when we had more divided government, there wasn't maybe as much action happening here as what was actually happening out in the states. You think about criminal justice and policing reform. You had... Uh, really important initiatives there when it came to dealing with prisons, when it came to dealing with civil asset forfeiture. States like Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico were really leading in terms of pushing civil asset forfeiture reform. Fiscal policy changes. Florida's done a great job in terms of its fiscal policies over the last 15 to 20 years, a lot of action there. So while While the federal government seems to not care very much about spending increases uh, relative to the, uh, uh, you know, to both the economy and to just kind of absolutely, states have really paid attention to that. Think about marijuana policies, Colorado, uh, Washington, Alaska, others have really been at the forefront of this. Education policies, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, regulatory reform, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, These are states that did right to work. So state governments are really quite active, and sometimes we miss that. Um, it's also the case that state governments are competing for citizens and businesses, and so they really have to pay attention to this because people and businesses do vote with their feet, so they have to attract those those people. Um, and also, as Justice Brandeis talked about, uh, states are those laboratories for democracy where experimentation can happen. Okay, so how do we define freedom? Well, we have a very typical American conception of this. Uh, We believe that freedom is a moral concept, and we say that freedom is the ability to order your life, liberty, and property as you see fit, consistent with the equal rights of others. It's a very traditional American way of understanding it. It's not radical. Um, Now, our index uh, includes freedom from, uh, or our freedom includes, uh, you know, freedom from unjust private, and public interference, we're measuring the public side of that, right? It's not the purpose of this to look at, you know, how effective are police departments in securing your property rights to keeping, you know, thieves out of your house. We're looking at how does government impinge on these areas? And other people should look at those other cases, but we're focusing on public policies here, even though we realize that you're not in a state of freedom if your personal and, and private property rights are being violated by private citizens. Uh, we also exclude abortion and the death penalty, and that's important here. Um, it's not because we don't have strong views on that, but because there are reasonable quote-unquote freedom arguments that can be made on different sides of the issue, uh, take abortion, uh, whether the government should secure the right to abortion or secure the right to life of uh, unborn persons or, or uh, people uh, depends on your view of, again, when life begins. That's a scientific, theological, religious, et cetera. That's, that's kind of beyond what we're trying to do in this study. So we've excluded that. But we do provide alternative indices at the end of the book. And you can look at that uh, at the website www.freedominthe50states.org, where we provide all this data and we provide those alternative uh, uh, indices. So if you a, have a strong pro-choice view or a strong pro-life view or somewhere in between, you can actually look at what freedom would look like if you included abortion. But for the top-line rankings, we don't include that or the death penalty. Now, I'll just briefly give you an aside on freedom of morality, uh, particularly if you're a conservative person who has strong ethical feelings about how people would use their liberty, um, that we have a law of equal freedom. That's that what I talked about, your ability to dispose of your life, liberty and property as you see fit, consistent with equal rights of others is the law of equal freedom, but we are not taking a stance on how people use that freedom. So if you think that people who are using drugs are acting immorally uh, in a way that's not consistent with their flourishing, or if you think that, um, uh, you know, that there really ought to be, um, you know, kind of, uh, certain views about uh, you know different kind of culture war issues. There's nothing wrong with people holding those strong views. The question is, do we actually utilize the power of government to enforce those views? And we're and so we we're in this piece, um, you know, we're not taking a, a normative uh, uh, position on those issues. Um, but what we are saying is that the state shouldn't intrude there. But we do have strong views of this. So, for example. Um, uh, you know, we might think very strongly about uh, the fact that, you know, heroin use is not consistent with someone's flourishing, generally speaking. I think that's a pretty easy one there. Um, we're, we're happy to say that. We're not moral relativists. Um, that being said, you know, we take a strong position that the state shouldn't be regulating, say, bakery hours, if even if you think that an employer shouldn't have their workers work 60 hours a week. We just think that that should be up to the freedom of contract. Um, uh, we've actually written on this. If you're interested, at reason.org uh, or sorry, reason.com. We wrote a piece called The Case for Virtue Libertarianism over Libertarianism" that you might find of interest. Um, now moving back to the to the data. Uh, We measure freedom uh, annually from 2000 to 2016. At the year end of 2016, the beginning of 2017 is when our data closes. We look at over 230 variables, so we're not cherry-picking just a few things that matter to us or might matter to the Cato Institute. Uh, We're trying to look at a full range of policies at the state level. Um, And this is everything from state and local tax burden to government consumption to debt, occupational licensing to -to right-to-work laws, uh, from drug and alcohol policy to even raw milk sales. It's all covered in there. Now, naturally, tax burden counts for more than raw milk sales, so we're not measuring these equally, and I'll get to that in a second. But basically, fiscal, regulatory, and personal freedoms count for about a third uh, of the value uh, of the index. Now, how do we weight these? It's not subjective. Jason and I didn't wake up one morning and say, "You know what? Let's go through and and rank uh, or weight all these policies as they affect you know over three hundred million people." And we're just going to just decide that for ourselves. And th- you know that would be a recipe for disaster, probably, because some of the things that Jason and I probably don't care about, like. I'm not a gambler. Jason's not a gambler. Um, These things actually do matter to a lot of people that freedom to do so. And and that came through actually when we started looking at what is the cost uh, to those whose freedoms are actually imposed upon by government regulation. And we used research that's been done by economists, political economists, political scientists, and other scholars to actually look and find out what is that cost to those people? Uh, and if you want more on the kind of specifics of how we do that, again, I uh, you know look at the PDF that's available online or, or get a copy of the book. Um, so it's a it's an objective waiting system. Now, again, you still might dif- disagree with our objective waiting system, and again, we think it's the best one. Otherwise, we wouldn't have put it in the book. But the fact is, that you might disagree on on that. Or you might think that a variable we include, say, right to work, is not one that should be in there. And so we've actually, this year, one of the great things at the Cato Institute's website is that... We have a personalize your rankings button where you can go in and say, you know, I care a lot about raw milk sales. It should be 50% of the index because I cannot flourish as a human without the ability to drink straight from the tap, if you will. Uh, So that's one of the things that we put in there. And I think that's a really exciting thing, especially because, you know, libertarians and classical liberals and conservatives oftentimes tend to be, uh, you know, excited about people's ability to choose. And uh, so here you can choose your rankings. Um, now, one of the things about our weightings is, yeah, we're looking at the, at the quote-unquote victim cost, if you will, of government paternalism and regulation, um, but it's also true that we think that there are some things that are so fundamental to rights that they've been encoded uh, in the Constitution, for example. You think about freedom of speech or uh, the Second Amendment rights, or they've been recognized by a, a court uh, in the United States as being fundamental. Those things get additional weight um, because of the fact that they're seen as so fundamental. Things like eminent domain reform right, connects up with constitutional guarantees. Uh, you think about things like regulatory takings or physician-assisted suicide. Those have been things that courts have talked about as being fundamental. Um, so quickly, I want to go through the weights before turning it over to Jason. But if you look here, you can see that these are some of the weights for the fiscal policy categories. Uh, obviously, state taxation is a big part of that. Um, but it even goes down to things like government debt Next, uh, if you look at regulatory policy, land use is a big deal, particularly because this really affects people's uh, ability to choose housing as they might see fit. Um, But also have health insurance, labor market regulations, and so forth. In terms of personal weights, uh, incarceration and arrests, and this is a, a crime adjusted. So we're not saying that, you know, your absolute level of people in prison is uh, a bad thing. It depends on the crime rate. Uh, some people deserve to be in prison in jail. Um, but we look at the crime adjusted uh, incarceration and arrest rates because that's valuable to see if we have a, a problem with excessive sentencing or overcriminalization, particularly when it comes to uh, victimless crimes or consensual crimes. Um, but you can see here it's a whole roster of things. You have marriage freedom, gambling freedom, gun rights. These are also valuable, and some of these things would appeal to you know people in bluer states. Some would appeal to people in red. It's this is clearly not a conservative index. If you look at the fact that we have marijuana freedom and uh, so forth, um, so uh, that's that's where we are on personal freedom. Now, in terms of what's changed over the la over the last few years since uh, the fourth edition. Um, One is we've had that annual data. So we used to collect data every two years, uh, and now we collect annual data, and we filled in that data in the past. Let me tell you, that made for a great Christmas break for both of us. Um, We also have improved weights looking at that new research because we want to be alive to innovation and social science that help discover the costs of these types of policies. Um, We've also then added some new and improved variables uh, so that we include now financial assets of government, and this is a way to offset... Um, government debt, because, of course, if states have cash on hand, that should offset that. I uh, think about land use regulations, uh, collateral consequences of arrest and incarceration. These are things like driver's license revocation. Uh, this is things like the cost of prison phone calls. Um, we also include gambling wins, if you, in, in other words, the revenue that the state is getting from that. Now, we also include indices of which policies have been federalized and which ones haven't because there are some things that have been taken out of the hands of state governments. If you think about uh, gun control or health care, these are areas in which federal court decisions and federal legislative efforts have actually reduced federalism, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, depending on your view. Uh, and we also have an index of cronyism to uh, to kind of understand that particular problem with our body politic. So in terms of the rankings, uh, you know, drum roll please. Um, in terms of fiscal policy, you could see Florida does really well. It's our number one state on fiscal policy, followed by New Hampshire, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, and New York, uh, a state that uh, Paul Krugman in a tweet today uh, said that we were saying was a tyrannical hellhole uh, is number 50. Um. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate that. Always good press to hear from a Nobel laureate. Um, in terms of regulatory policy, Kansas is the number one state, followed by Nebraska, Idaho, Iowa, and Indiana. And yet again, New York performs uh, really stellar there. Um, and now when you took a look at economic freedom, which is both fiscal and regulatory policy, You can see here again that Florida is performing best across the board, although on regulatory policy, Florida is not actually as good as it is on fiscal policy or on personal freedom for that matter. It's the area where it can probably improve the most relative to other states. And again, you see that New York performs quite badly here. Then in terms of personal freedom, things change a little bit. New York is not number 50, not that tyrannical hellhole. Uh, It's only number 40. (laughs) But uh, you see here a little separate cast of characters, Maine, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, and again, New Hampshire. Uh, And and unfortunately, I lived in Texas for a long time. I was a professor at Texas State University. Uh, Go Bobcats. Um, The fact is, is that Texas doesn't perform very well on personal freedom. And we can go into that more in the Q&A if that's of interest to you. Uh, so now the overall rankings. Um, and here uh, we have Vermont at number 46, New Jersey 47, California, Hawaii, and bam, New York. And they're worse by far. Um, so we'll see some of that data. It's not, they're not even close. As far as the best states, Florida is number one, followed by New Hampshire, Indiana, Colorado, and Nevada. Nevada. Those are the top five, and, and Florida is a new number one uh, here uh, based compared to the last published uh, version of this, um, and so that's exciting to see something, something interesting and different there. It uh, wasn't something I expected or we expected when we ran the data, but uh, uh, the proof is of, the, of the pudding is in the eating, and you look at the data, and uh, that's what popped out. So I'm going to turn it over to Jason now to talk about some of the implications of uh, these freedom rankings and freedom scores. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Will. Uh, I'd like to next take a look at how some of the top and bottom states have evolved over time. And so you can see that uh, New Hampshire used to be in a class sort of on its own uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, Freedom declined there significantly up until actually the 2010 election seemed to be kind of a turning point there. In a lot of states, uh, 2009 was a turning point. Um, what we've what we found in a lot of states is that they uh, responded to the Great Recession by cutting spending, and, uh, and they've kept fiscal restraint since. And as a result, we've seen a big increase in uh, average fiscal freedom over time, and we see that in some of these top states as well. Uh, you see that Florida in particular has uh, rebounded quite strongly uh, from the, the late 2000s uh, fiscal crunch, uh, the states that are near the bottom tend to just be kind of drifting downward. Vermont, of all the states that, um, uh, in the union, is the most worsened state since 2000 and has lost the most freedom since 2000, according to our data set. If you look at how state average overall freedom has changed over time, it, uh, it kind of mirrors some of those uh, figures we saw for specific states where average freedom was declining through the 2000s, actually the, in particular the first half of the 2000s, and then has gone up significantly since 2010. Uh, this, it's important to note that these figures that we're showing on state average scores over time exclude federalized policies. If you include federalized policies, policies that Congress or the Supreme Court have essentially taken over and nationalized, um, you'll actually see a, a less rosy picture, particularly because of the PPACA, right, so the uh, so-called Obamacare um, adopted kind of the most restrictive health insurance regulation regime that was extant in any of the states uh, at the time that it was passed. And as a result, that looks like, if you include that, that looks like a big decline in regulatory freedom, economic freedom, and overall freedom uh, for all the states, but particularly other than Massachusetts, which already had it, um, and particularly for those states that have more free market health insurance systems to begin with. We do uh, uh, an index of cronyism. We introduced this in the fourth edition. We update that in this edition. And this uh, looks specifically at uh, barriers to entry, at entering an industry or an occupation, as well as... um, Restrictions on prices, so how state government regulates prices. For instance, Wisconsin uh, is one of a few states that has a minimum markup law for all retail sales. So you actually have to, ch- they force you to charge more than you otherwise might. Um, and uh, in terms of freedom from cronyism, having the fewest of these sorts of policies, we have Colorado at the top. And then California is actually our most uh, cronyist state. We notice that uh, cronyism has a statistical relationship to a couple of interesting variables. Uh, one of them uh, that we're not displaying here is corruption. Uh, so s- state um, corruption rates, either as esti- especially as estimated by uh, state house reporters. Is uh, strongly uh, negatively related to freedom from cronyism. Uh, So more cronyist states are more corrupt. We also see here that more cronyist states have higher lobbyist to legislator ratios. Of course, we don't know which way the causation goes. Could be the more lobbyists give you more cronyist policies, or possibly, quite possibly, the other way around. That if you adopt cronyist policies, you get more lobbyists because they're trying to get exemptions from these. Uh, we find a, a strong relationship between public ideology and partisanship on the one hand and freedom on the other, particularly economic freedom. Uh, these uh, um, This text is a little bit small uh, for some of you perhaps to read, but what we have the, on the top of this is um, the relationship between Democratic and Green vote share in 1996 on the x-axis, and on the y-axis we have economic freedom in 2000, and you see a a noisy but negative relationship, especially once you get past sort of the midpoint, uh, and the, the most uh, democratic states significantly less free on average uh, than, than moderate states. And then we see this relationship seems to strengthen somewhat. There are fewer outliers uh, when we look in 2016. Uh, when we look at personal freedom, however, we, we don't see that relationship, and that might be as you expect. We you know, red states are, from our perspective, good on some personal freedoms and bad on others, and and vice versa for blue states. Uh, In the early 2000s, there was a positive relationship, actually, between democratic partisanship and personal freedom. That has sort of gone away now, in part because of um, things like the Obergefell decision that uh, that increased personal freedom in, in a lot of red states. Do Americans value freedom? We weren't sure what we would find when we first investigated this. Uh, and in the first edition, we looked at migration in the early 2000s. And what we saw then was that freer states did seem to attract people. We saw this across all three dimensions. So, so st- people are moving from states that are lower on fiscal, regulatory, and personal freedom to states that are higher on those three dimensions. What we're now able to do, because we have this long time series, is to split the sample and see if we were to predict from the first edition that in future those states that have freedom are going to have more freedom are going to have more migration in the future, does that hold true kind of out of sample? And it does, actually. If when we look post-Great Recession, uh, we find the same relationship that Americans are moving from less free states to freer states, and we, we look at that in a variety of ways. We compare states to their neighbors, and this relationship only strengthens Uh, And uh, we do see a little bit of evidence that um, that people are post Great Recession are moving are are more strongly motivated by economic freedom than personal freedom when they move. Uh, So personal freedom was stronger pre Great Recession, which might make sense that people are less likely to uh, to seek out uh, personal freedom when they're. Uh, you know, economic uh, position is uncertain they might be more motivated by jobs and things like that which depend on the investment of uh, entrepreneurs and of course these relationships hold for a, a large range of controls including climate and amenities and things like that it's not simply people moving to freer states because they happen to have better climates Uh, Here we show some of the relationships. These are without any controls, just bivariate relationships between freedom and migration. This here is pre-Great Recession. You see that states that were freer in 2000 got a lot more migration over the next eight years. And uh, there are some outliers, right? Nevada and Arizona have huge in-migration figures. Uh, You know, people are presumably moving there for reasons other than just freedom, Uh, Whereas a state like Louisiana has more out-migration than you'd expect, probably because of uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, But this relationship seems just as strong between freedom and migration when we look post-Great Recession uh, and... Again, we see that New York, for instance, our our worst state on freedom, is also the worst state uh, over the last 15 years in terms of net out migration. About 14% of New York's population in 2000 has subsequently moved out of state to another state on net uh, since then. Then we look at economic growth. We want to look at economic growth, in particular, at growth in personal income. we wanted to look especially at growth in personal income rather than say employment growth because you know, there, there might be this objection, okay, so fewer states might be creating lots of jobs, but are they good jobs? And so income growth is a way of looking at that, not just job growth, but how good are these jobs? Uh, when you look at economic growth in the states, there are a couple of pitfalls you might find in other lower quality studies and in memes that people share. Per capita income is a very bad measure uh, of economic health in a state. Why? Because people can move across states. So if a state has high per capita income, that means it's a state that's attractive to rich people. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a state that's attractive to everybody or a state that's more productive. In fact, there are a lot of states with high per capita income that people are flowing out of because they can't afford to live there. Uh, Massachusetts is an example. Uh, So we can't look at per capita income to compare states. We can use that to compare countries in terms of productivity. But when a state uh, improves its economic policies, the reward is not uh, a big increase in per capita income, maybe a a very small increase, but mostly what you get is new residents, new workers, new jobs in the state. Uh, So we uh, we have to use just total personal income, not per capita. And then we also have to adjust for cost of living. Uh, If you don't do that, you're not getting a a full picture because cost of living varies dramatically across the states. In particular, a state like California has very high cost of living. Housing is extremely expensive there. This is, I don't think, news to anybody uh, these days. Uh, And so once you adjust for that, California actually looks like uh, one of the worst economic performers in the country over the past two decades and not uh, one of the better ones. So Adam Smith said that uh, little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. So is he right about this? Do we need uh, easy taxes and a tolerable administration of justice for growth? And it does seem that those things are helpful. We find that economic freedom, not personal freedom, which is what we'd expect, economic freedom is associated with economic growth. Uh, when we, once, we have, once we look at state cost of living adjusted personal income growth, and we control for the region of the country, we control for initial capital per worker, and we split the sample by pre- and post-Great Recession, uh, we see some evidence that regulatory policy was more significant for growth pre-recession, fiscal a little more important post-recession. But the bottom line is that economic freedom uh, is important, equally important, actually, uh, both pre- and post-Great Recession, for economic growth, uh, so freedom does seem to have instrumental value in addition to its inherent interest. And with that, we'd like to open up for questions. Thanks, Jason,
0: and thanks, Will. Um, I'm going to start out start out with a couple of questions. Uh, the first one, open-ended: What is it that's so great about Florida, and what is it that's so bad about New York?
2: Well, they're are obviously both great places, uh, um, but their policies are are very different. And a state like Florida has really avoided the kind of stifling tax burdens that other states have have put on their peoples, uh, particularly you know after the Great Recession. But but again, Florida over the like I said, the last fifteen to twenty years has really been quite remarkable in keeping the clamps down. Um, it has done some things positive, not just not doing bad things, but it's done some positive things in terms of corporate taxes. Uh, another area where it's done quite well, especially compared to, say, a California or New York, uh, is, to, is to make sure that land use restrictions haven't been so onerous as to harm housing, um, which is a major you know, aspect of a flourishing life is being able to afford uh, reasonable accommodation. And Florida has some restrictions on the ability of localities Uh, to regulate land use in a way that is harmful to its citizens. So that's been something important. Um, It's also had uh, educational reforms that have been valuable. Um, I think they're number three in terms of educational freedom uh, due to some of the programs that were uh, started – um, I think, under uh, Jeb Bush. Uh, and so that's been valuable for Florida. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Jason to talk about uh, New York, uh, which is uh, obviously uh, not Burma or Madagascar in terms of its freedom, but in the American perspective is is clearly number 50, as you saw.
3: Yeah, uh, so New York is interesting. It, it has by far the highest state and local tax burden in the country. And when we investigate this, we find that, The state government tax burden is one of the highest but not completely out of whack with uh, some of the the high-tax states. The local tax burden is extremely high. It's far higher than even the the second-highest state. So it's 8.5% of income compared to New Jersey, which is 5.5% is the next highest. And we investigated why this was this time. uh, And we found that actually it's not necessarily local government's fault that the tax burden is so high in New York. It has to do with state mandates on local governments, uh, including collective bargaining rules. Local governments have almost zero control over employee uh, benefits, and, um, and uh, very generous collective bargaining rules also make it difficult for them to con- control uh, uh, public employee wages. And so that's dri- driven up the, the, uh, the tax burden there. But it's not just tax burden. Uh, we see New York has a high debt burden. Um, it, has, uh, it has rent controls, one of four states where there's rent control, and economists have studied uh, the effects of rent control in, in New York City and found that at about a third of a billion dollars per year are are simply destroyed by rent control that's a deadweight loss of rent control so that's huge plus a a large redistribution of wealth away from tenants in uncontrolled properties to tenants in controlled properties uh, which also counts uh, in our index as a as a loss for freedom Uh, new york has Um, Restrictive labor laws that are sort of anti-employment, high minimum wages that hurt upstate employers, especially employees, potential employees, uh, unskilled workers in in the upstate uh, because they just can't afford uh, to pay that kind of wage to an unskilled worker uh, in rural New York. Um, They have uh, mandatory short-term disability insurance, mandatory paid family leave things like that that are, again, additional cost to employees and, and an administrative burden for employers. Um, New York, on the personal freedom side, uh, is average in some areas. You know, it was, it's sort of average on incarceration rates. We would expect that a deep blue state would actually be better than average on incarceration rates and criminal justice policies, so that hurts New York. Obviously, uh, for gun rights, you know, no need to really go into that. It's highly restricted in New York. Um, uh, New York, uh, Will mention that New York is uh, one of only a handful of states that uh, penalize you for a drug offense, taking away your license. Um, New York is bad for homeschoolers, uh, which is probably the most restrictive state for homeschooling. Uh, so there are a variety of reasons why New York doesn't do well on either personal or economic freedom. Um, we could mention cigarette taxes, which almost amount to complete uh, tobacco prohibition in New York City. They're so high. Uh, and, and of course, you get black markets as a result of that.
2: Yeah, I'd want to add that that this has a big effect on where people are choosing to live. Uh, if you look at New York, for example, you'd think that New York would be an attractive place for people to move. It has a great city like New York City, a kind of world megacity that uh, is attractive to people coming from abroad. It should be attractive to people here at home. Um, but New York has lost 14% of its 2000 population. Uh, since 2000. I mean, that's just remarkable, right? And that's on net. So that's taking into account all the people who are coming from other states. um, And the outflow is pretty massive. I mean, I I guess you'd really want to be in the kind of rental truck business in New York, right? Um, You compare that to a state like Florida, our number one state, and Florida is having people flood in, uh, and it's not just uh, retirees, uh, older Americans. It's also younger Americans who are looking for opportunities. Perhaps they're the the low skilled worker in upstate New York who can't get a job because of the fact that the 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 minimum wage is so high, or because that tax burden is so stifling, uh, because housing costs uh, are a problem. Although upstate, there you know there's relatively affordable housing there because of their housing stock they had, but the fact is that there aren't opportunities. So even if you can get a house relatively cheaply, it's much harder to get jobs and to have that kind of economic dynamism that you've seen in Florida. And so I think this is a real case in which outcomes are impacted by freedom. And yeah, people move for lots of different reasons, weather, family, natural amenities. But on the margins, freedom matters. And you can really see that in states like New York compared to Florida. Or you look at Nevada compared to California. California's got probably the best weather in the world, great cities, lots of things to do, mountains, beaches, Hollywood. Um, And yet 6% of their population has flowed out during that time on net. And Nevada's growing uh, or you look at the difference between Illinois and Indiana. Indiana has lost a little bit of population, uh, like a lot of those Rust Belt states. But compare that to Illinois, where they've lost 10% of their population on net. And, and Illinois has a great city like Chicago that's a magnet, both in terms of its economic dynamism and it's just a great city, lots of things to do. Um, uh, and so if you compare Indiana to Illinois, you can really see that there's a freedom advantage there. Uh, you see it between Massachusetts and New Hampshire, Vermont and New Hampshire. Uh, it's just really hard to look at these kind of paired comparisons and say, "Yeah, we don't think freedom matters." Even if you didn't do the regression analysis that we do.
3: Yeah, interestingly, uh, Florida is the number two destination state for people moving out of New York uh, after New Jersey, and uh, we looked at the uh, the age demographics of people moving out uh, by five year. Uh, chunks. And we found that the biggest age demographic moving from New York to Florida is actually 20 to 24-year-olds. So it's not retirees. Since we're
0: on Capitol Hill, uh, another question about federal policy that can impact state and local policies. Um, You have marijuana policy, for example. Some states have ignored federal policy in cities as well with complete legalization or for medicinal uses. Uh, What other types of policies on the federal level can affect the states, where maybe the state says, we just want to be in compliance with federal law?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so in terms of what's happened in our index, we've seen that um, courts have struck down uh, state sodomy laws, um, same-sex marriage bans, uh, and local gun bans, right, McDonald v. Chicago. Right? Those are the big things that federal courts have done. And then Congress federalized health insurance regulations. So those are the things that have happened. Uh, and if there's a lesson from that, it's that um, uh, power is still centralizing over time in Washington. Um, but in general, when courts do it, it's good for freedom. <laughs> and when Congress does it, it's bad for freedom. At least that's the, the lesson of the last 16 years. Now, other areas where, um, where states can nevertheless... right, The federal government cannot commandeer the state. So states can... Uh, choose whether or not to enforce federal laws. And so we've seen with marijuana that states have legalized it, and the federal government really doesn't have the resources to go in and enforce federal law in all these places. Uh, we've seen that with sanctuary towns and and cities and, and states. Uh, they don't have to enforce federal immigration law. This is, uh, you know, black-letter constitutional law that the federal government can't force them to do this. Uh, we can also... Um, you know, In other areas, uh, there are some states that have tried to do this on, on firearms. Uh, Montana uh, passed a law saying that a Montana-manufactured gun does not have to follow the restrictions of the National Firearms Act. And I believe that hasn't really been litigated yet in terms of uh, whether that can get around the interstate commerce issue. Um, but certainly Montana as a state is not going to be enforcing federal law there, it looks like.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think the marijuana policy issue is a great example of how states have the power to buck Washington on certain issues. And, and in, in some cases that that's a good thing for Liberty. Uh, and I think that, uh, uh we sometimes forget, be, uh, it's interesting to know why we think this, right? Because if you look at the original constitutional design, um, states are really empowered in our system. um, but we oftentimes think of the co-equal branches of government. You know, you look at Congress versus the the presidency. But we oftentimes forget that, that uh, it's not necessarily a kind of pure hierarchical system in which Washington gets to dictate everything down that it wants to. There are significant powers that the states have, and the states can push back given their, you know, so think in the case of um, a lot of the areas like uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, what used to be called kind of... um, uh, health, safety, and morality issues, right? Those are areas in which the states, like with the marijuana policy, can really try to push back. And because of the fact that the federal government can't commandeer the states, uh, then they can push back. Now, again, there are some areas, like with civil rights, when, when states have pushed back, that's been a bad thing for, for liberty. Uh, we saw that with uh, Jim Crow, in which states were violating individuals' rights, um, and that required a, a federal solution there.
3: Yeah. And uh, uh, very quickly, I just want to mention that uh, the federal government uh, um, does uh, have an adverse effect on, on state policy. I think in some other ways, we could talk about equitable sharing with civil asset forfeiture, getting around state asset forfeiture rules. Occupational licensing, actually, a lot of that's been driven by the federal government. They require landscape architects, for instance, to have a, a state license to work on federal funded projects. So states have an obvious incentive to start licensing that profession.
0: Great, and then just one other quick question, Jason. You mentioned cronyism, um, which makes me think corporate welfare. Uh, where does this fall in the rankings? Where states and local governments offer tax breaks, subsidies, loan guarantees, where you know to lure a big corporation? We've seen we saw this with uh, Amazon's second headquarters, where every city you know was trying to draw Amazon in, or you see a taxpayer-funded stadium or new arena with the promise of huge economic benefits later. Where does that fall in the ranking of of freedom?
3: Well, it doesn't uh, directly. Uh, No one has good data on this. Uh, Good Jobs First is trying to get data on this. Right now it's just kind of a mass of of data on projects that they've happened to get information on, and we don't know that it's comprehensive. It's not organized by year. Uh, So it's just not suitable for our purposes. Um, But the one thing I will say is that states that simply do not have a broad-based tax, are, are unable to offer incentives on that tax, right? So if you don't have a state income tax or a state corporate income tax, you're not going to have lots of exemptions and loopholes to these taxes. So um, in general, states with lower tax burdens, as we measured, are going to be the ones that don't have these broad-based taxes and, and have fewer of these exemptions, because the more exemptions you have, the higher rates have to be. All right. We have about
0: 10 minutes left. We'll open it up to the audience. Uh, please wait for our microphone to come near you so the cameras can pick it up. I had a cool question on methodology.
2: Uh, how do you have weigh out or parse out uh, restrictions, in one f- restrictions in one field or area that may add to freedoms in another? For example, a local tax that is used to expand transportation options, thereby giving people the freedom to be able to live further away from their workplaces, cheaper housing, et cetera.
3: So our index is only an index of negative freedom, so we don't include positive freedoms like access to resources. Um, We do take this into account, though, in how we weight tax burden. We realize that taxes do pay for some valuable things. And so we look at um, how... uh, um, the uh, how people value uh, the services from taxes, and we use that to basically shrink the weight of tax burden, would be the intuitive way to think about it. So tax burden is actually worth a lot less in the index than it would be otherwise. That we're not assuming that every dollar taxed is a diminution of freedom.
2: I, I do think it's important, though, that freedom isn't your ability to, to live any life you choose at the cost of others. And so, you know, if someone doesn't have the ability uh, to uh, own a printing press, it's not government's responsibility to provide one so that you can have your First Amendment rights. What it means is that government can't restrict your ability to run a newspaper or a website or a blog. Uh,
3: on the
0: left side, I'll, against the wall. Thank you. So when you
3: think of Texas, you think of one of the freest states in the Union, at least the top five. but. Um, Your ratings for economic is 10th, lawsuit 45th, regulatory
1: 26th, health insurance 49th, and guns 29th, even guns. So I'm wondering why that is and why it's falling in most of those.
2: Uh, I think we should both jump in here. I used to live in Texas for a long time, and he was born in Texas, so we'll try to take this on. I love Texas, Texas forever, right? But unfortunately, Texas has not lived up to its own hype as far as freeing individuals from uh, the kind of uh, paternalism of the state. So it's number 50 on personal freedom. And a big part of that is driven by the um, above the crime rate adjusted incarceration and arrests. Um, It does poorly in its criminal justice areas. Now, there's a key caveat there, especially because my friends at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and at Right on Crime would, would remind us is that Texas has been leading in reform efforts to try to get a handle on that problem, because they've recognized that this is a real challenge. I mean, you've you've had too many people in prison in Texas, uh, especially relative to the crime rate. And in fact, that's why you have things like right on crime, right? You want to be smart on this, right? Not just tough. And for a long time, Texas was just tough without thinking about being smart, And so that's why you've seen conservative leadership actually there uh, in the legislature with Governor Perry and others to try to get a handle on that because they know they have a problem. Uh, Do you want to add anything to that, Jason?
3: Yeah, I mean, so one example of uh, Texas being overbearing on criminal justice is on marijuana policies where it's one of the few states where you can still get life in prison for a single marijuana offense not involving a minor. So simply just cultivating a large amount of marijuana can theoretically send you to prison for life. Um, in in gun rights um, Texas here has you know it's not as if it's bad really for gun rights it's just, just that most states have been liberalizing gun laws over time and Texas is not a constitutional carry state it's a shall issue state but the permits are kind of expensive and, and difficult to obtain um, you know in terms of there are some hoops to jump through and uh since, the index, since our closing date on the index, Texas uh, legalized open carry. But, so it will probably rise on, on gun policy in the next edition, but, um, but as of our closing date, it completely banned open carry. So those are some reasons why it wasn't so good on gun rights. Um, you know, Actually, on, on even things like education, we're sort of curious to see that Texas does not have school choice programs, um, even though states like Arizona and Florida and Indiana have gone very far. And affording school choice to uh, to parents.
2: Yeah, that last one's really important. I mean, I, I, if if Texas really wants to stay on the cutting edge, and Texans are very keen to be number one, right? Uh, they educational freedom, kind of giving families more choices, is I think would be a huge thing for Texas. Uh, even more important than the rankings is that this will just be good for the children of Texas, and that's kind of part of the problem: is that these policies aren't good for the kids of Texas.
3: I was noticing that on every single one of the rankings
0: that are on this paper, Hawaii seems to be in the bottom five for every single one.
2: And I was just wondering why that was. Well, I think first we're, we're excited to have uh, Gen Z here uh, at the event. Uh, my kids are Gen Z and they're watching at home, uh, but it's great to have you here. So thanks for coming. Thank
3: you. Yeah. I mean, Hawaii is uh is a pretty regulated state all around. It's, um, it has high, very high taxes, and those taxes are also centralized, so states do get some benefit if um, most taxes in the state are at the local level and there are a lot of local governments to choose from because there's the, the idea that maybe what local governments are doing is basically just providing services that people want, uh, much more so than when it's all centralized at the state level and there's little choice within the state. Uh, Hawaii is the only state where the, the whole state is a school district. So you don't like your school district? Move to another state. (laughs) 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 Um, It's probably now that Illinois has uh, uh, enacted some tentative firearms reforms. It's probably the most restrictive state for guns. Uh, That's not terribly surprising. It's also very restrictive for labor law. and Hawaii's had, as a result of this, big out migration. So, Hawaii has lost 6% of its 2,000 population on net to other states. And you know, you really have to mess up your policies badly if you're driving people away from a tropical paradise. Um, <laughs> That's what's going on there. Hi. Um, so with somewhat less pride than I might have said at the beginning of this, I'm from New York. <laughs> um, and actually, I'm just wondering what the data show in terms of like, you were talking about uh, over time how, how the states are, have been moving. And if it's the case that uh, states that are already kind of in a bad position are more likely to get worse, um, it, like kind of what you're mentioning with Illinois and the gun reforms is probably because of Chicago, right? And it's a bunch of people trying to make things better. And, you know, they're actually taking away liberties and, you know, with New York and New York City and the MTA might like, raise taxes to fix the MTA
2: or something mm-hmm. like that,
3: right? Like, are those sorts of things that happen a lot? Or is it not really the case, like in the, like over the 50 states?
2: I mean, I think one of the problem, uh, again, not to beat up New York, because we forget that Hawaii, California, New Jersey, uh, Vermont are, are also doing quite poorly, but not to beat up on New York or to beat up on New York, maybe I am. Um, uh, you know, there's just a different mindset about the relationship between the individual and the government there, um, at least within the governing class. And I think it's more than just like what they say, it's also what they reveal. I mean, there's just this notion uh, in what they do and what they say that, you know, government needs to do a lot of stuff. And oftentimes it's well-intentioned, I think. You think about the 20-ounce soda ban, uh, or in California you think about the straw issue that's popular now. Uh, You know, there's people being killed in Yemen, but straws are the most important thing. Um, But, uh, you know, this is a case in which there's just a kind of paternalistic mindset and, and having lived in a lot of different places, uh, I've lived in Utah, I've lived in Texas, Indiana, New Hampshire, you know, Massachusetts, you know, the fact is, is that you look at these places and you, you visit New York, just a real different approach, right? New Hampshireites just don't like to be told what to do. It's why they score well across the board. Um, so these states like Florida, New Hampshire, Colorado, these are not states that are just doing really well in economics and not so good on personal freedom or vice versa. They're doing pretty well across the board. And I, I think that that flows a lot from political culture. And there's a huge debate in political science about institutions versus culture. It's obviously both have an, have, have an impact. But I think political culture matters here. Um, and that's, the same, that's one of the things that's so frustrating about Texas is that I think there is a kind of political culture of liberty, but at the same time, there are some other threads throughout Texas's political culture that pushes in the other direction, particularly in the past. And so there is some path dependence from that past. And ideally, Texas's more individualistic political culture that that talks a lot about freedom will outweigh some of those other things, and maybe then Texas could realize its right and proper place in the top five.
3: Yeah, I, I think political culture matters a lot. I mean, it's, there's, I think there's no accident that it's a bunch of uh, Midwestern states that do well on regulatory policy. Um, but I also have a pet theory about the change over time because we – and I think some of the data support it. So we do see growing divergence in freedom. So the, the freest states um, have become freer, especially post-2008. The less free states are just sort of drifting less and less free, it seems like. Uh, And I I think this has a lot to do with actually a a change in GOP attitudes uh, toward public policy at the state level after the Bush years. So during the Bush years, a lot of red states lost freedom. uh, And then during the Obama years, they seemed to rediscover it. Uh, And, you know, read into that what you will, but, um, you know, it's post two thousand ten that we 've seen all these reform initiatives in places like Wisconsin and Indiana and Michigan and uh, New Hampshire uh, you know it 's red states that are now taking on occupational licensing and repealing certificate of need laws and um, you know doing doing right to work which is obviously a Republican priority but not one that they really stressed until very recently uh, so this I, I think there's there has been a change and from our perspective a, a, a good one in uh in republican governance at the state level and then also you've seen some change in which states uh in, in in state partisanship uh so in the last edition the fourth edition uh we we actually wrote a prediction that West Virginia was probably going to improve on freedom because they had moved so dramatically from a deep blue state to a deep red state, we thought that would have some policy consequences. And actually in this uh, version of the index there, number two, an increase in freedom in 2015 and 2016, you have seen a dramatic change in the policy environment there as a result of the change in the partisan environment. Uh, and simply with the nature of political geography in the U.S., the majority of states are uh, now lean red. Right? If you just get a pure count of the number of states... And so as a result of that, you see a lot of, a lot of those states trying to, to increase, especially economic freedom, um, but also mm-hmm. some of these personal. And
2: parts. I think that the political culture point fits with that in the case of Vermont, where I think you've seen more and more people um, moving from places like New York, uh, Connecticut, and that's changed the political culture in Vermont. And, and I think that's why, well, I mean, I guess we'll see, but I think that might be why a, a Republican governor could pass uh, could sign gun control Uh, laws uh, and not suffer as they might have you know 20 30 50 years ago in a place like Vermont that when it came to guns was much more like New Hampshire than it was like deep blue states Uh, I used to joke with people from Texas uh, that that Vermont had better gun laws than Texas which was absolutely true Um, and that always shook up the Texans because they think of Vermont as like hippie Birkenstock wearers and they're the freedom lovers
0: All right. We are out of time for the briefing today. I want to thank everyone for attending uh, the Cato Institute's Capitol Hill briefing to the Hill staffers. Enjoy your last week of recess. Uh, And if you have additional questions or want to get in touch with Jason and Will, uh, please feel free to talk to us afterwards. Thank you. Thank you.